Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Hello and you're very welcome to this special edition of the Inside Politics from the Irish Times. It is the 27th of October 2018 and the count is well underway for the presidential election and also the referendum on blasphemy and the results, I think it's safe to say, are entirely clear. On a very low turnout, the incumbent, Michael D. Higgins, has smashed the opposition and has recorded probably the most successful electoral result, arguably, in the history of the state. He will be coming in with somewhere in the mid to high 50s in terms of the percentage of the vote, which means that he will be elected on the first count. Everybody's trailing behind him, but there has been a voter from the pack in the form of Peter Casey, one of the three Dragon's Den candidates who was ranking at about 2% only 10 days or so ago in most opinion polls, but looks set to gain more than 20%. Along with that, we'll also be discussing the very poor showing of the Sinn Féin candidate and the other also-rans. I'm joined in studio by our political editor, Pat Leahy, our deputy political editor, Fiek Kelly, and uh, Kitty Holland, our social affairs correspondent. Pat, to you first. Did I miss anything? No, I think you've... uh summed it all up there so Okay that's it Thanks very much uh, I hope Thank you enjoyed you. this podcast <laughs> um, No I, I think um, I think what you're saying is right it's important I think to realise amidst all the fixation about this morning and all the social media traffic understandably so perhaps about the uh, surprise showing for Peter Casey uh, I think it's important to realise that the biggest thing about this election result is that Michael D Higgins notwithstanding a low turnout has been re-elected or will be re-elected on the first count. That's a very big thing. It's a very big achievement, a very big statement of endorsement uh, for him by the voters. And that actually is more important than the Peter Casey, if less pungent and less interesting uh, for, for political discussions. That's the big thing. And what does that say about Michael D. Higgins and Ireland uh, in 2018? I think it says, first of all, that people were happy with the way he has conducted himself as president over the last seven years and are quite happy to, with some reservations perhaps, to uh, to put him in the Oris uh, for the next seven years. But it also says, I think, that in a time when there is, you know, the, the tenor of the times is, is anti-political. And while Michael D. Higgins is a man of, of, of the left, he's a man of letters, he's also a Democrat, he's a parliamentarian, mm. he is, he's a reformer but one within the system who has been content, albeit impatient uh, with it, he has been content to work our political and parliamentary system as a route for achieving his political and social goals. Someone who is part of our political tradition, our established political tradition, if not a pillar of the establishment, uh, has been re-elected with a huge uh, huge mandate. And I think that's an interesting point. Katie, what do you think of that? 
Um, well, I mean, I think this re- this election, I was about to say referendum, because I, I, I think this election was always going to be a referendum on Michael D. Higgins and the vote was then going to be split five ways among the others. And as, as you say, the, the KC surge is, is very interesting in what it says about how he put himself, the way, manner in which he put himself before the people in the last week. But I also think what Pat says about how how anti-establishment the, the political scene is, it shows that the president's presidency is actually outside politics and that uh, people actually don't see this as a political vote. They see it as a personality vote. And there has been huge affection for Michael D. Higgins. And kind of, um, I think whatever the other candidates put forward, they were trying to put forward a political message, whereas what this result shows is how much it's a personality driven um, contest, how kind of apolitical it is really. And, and, the, that and the electorate know that. The incumbent, doesn't it? Yeah, and I suppose he was very clever in his really well. time about announcing he was going to run again because it gave the other candidates so little time to put their message forward. So there was really only three or four weeks to really um, to get out there and, and canvas. But people really weren't interested, it seems, in the political message what any of them were trying to put forward, if they were putting forward any real coherent political message. The, it was a referendum on Michael D. Higgins. People are really affectionate about him. They really like him. They see him as above corruption, almost above the political fray at this stage. And they were happy to keep him. The people have spoken and they've spoken very clearly, but am I right to feel a little bit of unease about the way in which incumbency gave such an advantage to Michael D. Higgins and that perhaps some people have suggested we should have a look at some of the issues, for example, that there should be some form of moratorium where if there's a sitting president running again, they should step down for a month and, you know, their duties can easily be taken over by the Council of State so that they can't... To be honest, duck and dive a bit, as Michael D. Higgins did. Yeah, there is, there's, there's, there's merit to that argument because uh, Michael D. Higgins basically set the terms of engagement by using his office as an excuse why he couldn't, couldn't do certain things. So he couldn't participate in some debates because he said he was reading legislation and bills sent to him. He couldn't uh, publish his expenses because the civil service wouldn't let him because that would be seen as a political act on behalf of an unpolitical civil service. He couldn't go into detail about his flights because that was... Uh, in keeping with the established that uh, established practice that the president is above politics, so yeah, there is an argument to that. He had it both ways. He played it quite skillfully. He played his hand well in that he used his position to uh, set what he wanted from the campaign. So he did it like it, it, he did it in a almost, an almost virtuous fashion that he was concerned about the independence of the office. When you could clearly see through that, he was using the office. To, as a defensive, as a defensive shield, defensive shield yeah. to, sure. to avoid answering questions or publishing expenses or anything like that. So it kind of speaks to Pat's point as well that he is a machine politician who has been around a long, long time and knows how to work the game and knows how to play the game and plays it better than anybody else and played it well this time to achieve what he wanted. But we do also know, Pat, that um, there were exit polls from both ourselves and from RTE last night and we know from, I think, from the RTE poll um, that... The people who voted really didn't give a damn about this expenses story, which received a lot of column inches and airtime over the last few weeks. Uh, I, I think Michael D. didn't have a terribly happy time during this campaign. The sort of obvious glee that he takes from many of the public engagements that are part of the job, I thought, was absent from the uh, uh, you know, the debates certainly that he was engaged in, uh, or the ones that he, he, he turned up for. Um, I thought he was under pressure in a lot of those debates. He was certainly under a bit of pressure from media questioning and other parts of the campaign. But I think that, you know, elections, 
we always often we always search for kind of simple explanations or, or, or singular explanations of phenomenon. There's um, or of electoral results. There's there's inevitably a whole heap of reasons that go into it. Some of them more important than others. And I don't think it was that uh, so much that you know people that all people disregarded these questions about Michael D. Anecdotally, I heard it coming up a lot amongst uh, people, but they clearly didn't think it was important enough or insufficient numbers of them thought it was important enough to deny him uh, a, a second term. And certainly when he was under pressure in the debates, while he was, I thought at times, visibly under pressure, it didn't really work to the advantage of and any so of the he, other and so candidates. It, it may have, it may not have affected the outcome, but is he diminished as he embarks on his second term as I a think, result of any of that? I think he is. A, uh, oh, I think I he is a bit. To be honest, I think the campaign has not been. Well, well, certainly its culmination has been something of a triumph for him. Uh, I, I think he probably will feel that he has a bit of rebuilding uh, to do, perhaps of his stature uh, with, uh, with with the public as a result of some of those things. So it'd be interesting, I suppose, to see uh, how thoroughly and how quickly he fulfills his promise to publish details mm. of the expenses at, uh, at, at, at the Oris. Um, so that will be interesting to watch. I think you probably see him try to, you know, set out an agenda for his second term, try to reconnect with people in his speech at the inauguration on uh, on the 11th of November. Frankly, you know, I, I don't think anybody has come out particularly well out of this uh, But let's this remember campaign. he's got the biggest mandate of an election Absolutely. candidate. It'll all be forgotten about. You know, and I think people... I'm not quite sure. Well, I think that people look at um, his political career. He, um, There's no apparent, you know, scandals in the past. He's never seemed to have got into any trouble over money or corruption or anything. He seems squeaky clean. And I think people just gave him the benefit of the doubt. I think he will publish his expenses and that'll be the end of it. And I really do think we have to remember... On a low turnout, albeit he has the biggest mandate that any. I mean, I don't accept that he is unbeatable or was unbeatable though in this campaign. It was a very poor campaign. Well, I think people didn't have enough time. I think that yeah. it was a dreadful campaign. And there was too many candidates. candidates. Too many candidates. Standard of candidate was poor. Like if it had been Michael D Higgins versus a strong Fine Gael candidate with a strong. I think if Peter Casey had had a year's run into it and was you know gathering machine around him and was perhaps holding sort of rallies in the national stadium or that mm. kind of thing, big political meetings, I think he would have been a real contender. But I, 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 wonder, I don't I think he had, um, I, I don't think, think he yeah, had enough Case, time. Yeah, I think Peter Case actually hit it, it just bounced correctly for him. Mm. He struck about 10 days out, so he got a run in, but not too much time to yeah, really that's, expose that's him. That's exactly yeah. one of the points. So let's, let's, turn to, let's turn to Peter Casey now, because um, as I said earlier, 2% on the the last opinion polls, as opinion polls per se, before the election, 21% or so. Um, there is an argument, you know, that if I, in six years' time, happen to look into my bathroom mirror and say, Hugh, do you know, do you ever think of running for president? That um, that the way to do it or the way to handle it would be just to mosey along and then about six or seven days I would say something really outrageous mm. that kind of elevates me above my my fellow aspirants in some way and gets me airtime and causes a bit of controversy because that's exactly what happened. Well, it, it would have to be something that resonated. You couldn't yeah, just exactly. say, so you yeah. can say something outrageous that people, everyone... Something outrageous, probably something outrageous that, that was kind of outside the bounds of polite discourse and appealed to, to people in a, in a mm-hmm. fairly atavistic kind of way. But, yeah. Anecdotally, I think a lot of his vote as well... I, I, was that people felt he wasn't going to win. 
So it was a safe protest vote. That people, some people who voted for Casey went, Michael Deacon's going to win anyway, I'm going to vote for this guy because he's not going to win. But I don't necessarily think that they may, may have wanted to see him as president, if that makes sense. Like it was a protest vote rather than a vote of support for him. And isn't it, isn't it, isn't it true, Pat, that um, in most referendums and in these kind of contests, there's about 30% of people who just use them to express their anger and resentment against... Who vote against anything. Uh, yeah, well, essentially, essentially, yes. And that, and that, that, I mean, Fintan O'Toole has, has a piece on our website now, which I think he's, among other things, is kind of arguing that, that that's part of what this vote is. That it wasn't that he went looking for this vote, it was that the vote was looking for somewhere to go. No, he did go. I, I mean, I disagree no. that, he, you know, that he was an entirely kind of witless actor in this. He clearly went looking for the vote. He hit on the traveller thing that resonated uh, with welfare. a lot of people and the welfare mm. thing. Uh, I mean, it's it's difficult to disaggregate the various components of the KC vote without kind of delving into detailed research on it. But I think what it's pretty safe to say is that there are a number of elements that go up to that go into mm. the aggregate 21 or 22 percent or whatever he ends up with. And part of that will be an habitual protest vote that is happy to vote against everybody or to kick kick the establishment in the arse or whatever. And he got, actually Sinn Féin gets a lot of that vote uh, in the ordinary course of events. We can talk about that uh, in, in, in a while perhaps. But I think that Peter Casey certainly got some part of that vote. And he also got vote, the votes of a lot of people who, for whom the traveller related stuff mm. is a significant issue. There's um, um, Stephen Kinsella, who's an economist and writes mostly for the Sunday Business economist. Post. A very good economist, indeed. Um, he's uh, praising you here on, on Twitter. Oh, well, he's an he excellent economist. He says that last week yeah. Pat suggested a result for Peter Casey above 10 to 15% would be a strong signal to other politicians that there is, quote, something unquote there. And he goes on to say, we know now that there's something there, but no one should be rushing about to declare exactly what that something <coughs> is. And he's arguing for better research on, on, on what people's views are, you know, have a look under the hood because it, there is a yeah, kind I of an element of certainly, unknown yeah. unknowns about this. There is. And, and I mean, I've done uh, I've done a piece which is probably up on the, the, the website by now saying that we shouldn't get carried away with the significance of the case he votes. <laughs> you know, if there was a, you know, cast your minds back to Dana, to Declan Ganley, do they play a significant role in our politics now? You know, they don't. This is a second order election, as Felix says, to, to some extent that people had a free pass. At the same time, it's not, it, it, it doesn't turn our political world upside down by any stretch of the imagination, but it will have some effects. And one of those, I think, will be that there are elections coming up next year, European elections and local elections, possibly a general election as well. And candidates contemplating those elections. We'll look at what Peter Casey has done with his comments about travellers and his comments about people on uh, on welfare. And they will think to themselves, aha, mm. there may be something there. And, uh, and so, you know, it doesn't, as I say, it doesn't turn things upside down. But it is an indication that there is something there. Mm. And there is a, po a possible route to profit for some people. 21% is a quota mm. in yeah, practically Jane, every constituency. Jane Souter, who we had in on, on Wednesday, Kitty, was talking about some of the research that she's done at DCU about the kind of the social background uh, and attitudes of people who vote for um, nativist and populist parties okay. in other European countries. And she looked at uh, that situation here and obviously, you know, we've similar social and demographic profile mm -hmm. here so that, and that some of those attitudes are out there. I mean, you cover a lot about 
um, social issues in general and uh, travellers among them. I mean, yeah. it's no, it's it's not a surprise to me. I don't know if it's a surprise well, it's to not, you I mean, that, it's that, not a surprise. that Peter Casey hit a nerve. Yeah, I mean, I think he hit a yeah a real raw nerve among um, a lot of people who are exhausted, working incredibly hard, um, can't afford housing, can't afford childcare, can't afford. Uh, decent education, can't afford to access healthcare and who are quite frankly really pissed off. And I think he obviously has hit a nerve with a lot of people and, you know, and we see that ac- across Europe and we've seen it in America, we've seen it with the Brexit vote in in, uh, in England or Britain. Um, and th- obviously it's something there and, you know, for, I suppose, establishment politicians to get up, get up now and say it was an awful shock that the surge that Casey has had shows how, I think people would argue, how are they oblivious to the level of fed upness that there is among an awful lot of people or are they just inured to it? Are they so used to it and, and think that, you know, it doesn't really matter and they don't need to pay attention to it? And, you know, with the caveat again that this is there's, this is on a very low turnout and, and an awful lot of people weren't motivated enough to come out to vote for anyone, never mind Casey, um, the surge from 2% to 20 one, 22% is significant and has to be looked at. But um, I think the, the traveller thing is obviously, it's there. It's no surprise to me that there's a huge racism, like huge racism against travellers institutionally and among people who have uh, very little experience of travellers other than a negative experience. And that's that's a problem that um, both political leaders and the travelling community have to look at. And how at. does that manifest itself? One of the things that, uh, and we probably see more detail of this over the next 24, 36 hours or so. Some of the highest um, yeah. votes for Peter Casey were in, were in areas where, there, where, where there's a strong traveller presence or where communities are living like close cheek by jail with, with, with travellers. Yeah, I mean, people are living cheek by jail with a community that is um, incredibly discriminated against, who are living in huge poverty of the highest, some of the highest poverty rates have, you know, huge mental health issues, 80% unemployment. So yes, they have, they are living cheek by jail with a community that is not flourishing by any standards. And that's what has to be addressed. I mean, there's there's issues there, obviously, for the traveller community, there's dysfunction and violence and um, and. <laughs> internalised kind of toxic shame which might then acts out in a way that doesn't, you know, is not attractive, quite frankly. Um, but there, then there are issues that, um, and that the key one, obviously, is accommodation. And until we sort out the accommodation issue for travellers, which is going to take political leadership, the travellers can't address the racism against them on their own. That is going to take political leadership. There are communities who are objecting to well-run, well-managed traveller accommodation where travellers just want to live and go about their lives and send their kids to school and just not pay no heed to anyone and just live peacefully. That's going to have to be provided, and that's going to, and that racism that says no travellers in our community is going to have to be faced down because there are well-run travelling community halting sites and housing sites all over the country. We hear nothing about. Um, and if that could be provided, this is not rocket science. This is a tiny community. That's how you begin, begin in a very small baby steps accepting all to that, address. Isn't there a huge amount of hypocrisy around as well? I, uh, for me, Fiuk, one of the most telling moments of, of this particular strand of the of the campaign was in, I think it was the first TV3 debate when everybody was there as opposed to just, just five of them. And each candidate was asked if they would have any issue with living next door to a, to a traveller site. Um, and everybody gave, you know, the correct answer right. that, of course, they would have no problem. Except Peter Casey, who kind of turned around and just laughed at them and said they were all lying. And whatever you may think about that, I have no doubt that a lot of people watching that well, they didn't thought give that the Peter Casey was telling is, the truth is, is and the, that well, he was being somehow more authentic. Like, yeah, of course, there is, there, is a, uh, there, is, there is a long history of politicians 
objecting to travel accommodation mm-hmm. and tying themselves up in knots to explain why they are doing so. I heard a, a Fine Gael senator on the radio last week saying he objected to traveller accommodation in his constituents because of topography issues. <laughs> that, like maybe the incline of the land wasn't correct or something like that. But Like he'd care where traveller communities were living I on. spent the, the morning ringing people in the two main parties, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, just to kind of see, as Pat said, was there an effect of this case he surge, what was the effect of it and the kind of large degree there wasn't one but they did all say that the, the traveller issue and the issues that maybe some people in the settled community feel towards travellers needs to be addressed in a structured manner because one minister was speaking to he said look I actually feel really annoyed because I tried to bring this up a couple of years ago I got into trouble about it but if we don't deal with it in a mm-hmm. mature fashion we open to door, the door to someone like Casey who will then use it as a rocket under a campaign to then go focus on other issues and, you know, p- maybe run a populist type campaign as we've seen, as you spoke about it, it, we've seen in other European countries. But there is a kind of acknowledgement now, whether that lasts after this weekend is over, that people do feel that it needs to be addressed. And I was structuring the campaign after Peter Casey made his comments to Port McLaughlin. It's a Sinn Féin senator from Donegal who was from a traveller background. Um, he said, I was speaking to him myself and he made a statement in the Shannon. He said, yes, that is, that does need to be addressed. He says, not everybody who has a bad experience with traveling travelers are racist. He said, that was, that was his words. He said, there are problems within the traveler community. The traveler community needs to address that. And there needs to be greater communication between the self community and the traveling community. And maybe, maybe that will be one of the lasting um, issues of this campaign when everything else is done. Well, that the mainstream politicians realise we have to address this or else it will bubble up in a way And there's well, such a tiny camp. There's only 30,000 of them. They wouldn't even fill Crow Indeed. Park. Well, I mean, well, it's just ridiculous. Here's, a, here, here's an idea which, which comes from, from Stephen Kinsella after his nice words about Pat. Well, he suggests that we should do some we proper research on people's attitudes. Um, and on foot of that, we should start some kind of a structured, proper conversation. He says that we've actually done that on quite a lot of different subjects and, you know, women's reproductive rights, uh, you know, same-sex marriage. And it's, it's led to a positive outcome. Mm. And he suggests there is no better person to lead such a debate than a certain gentleman who will be spending the next seven years in Phoenix Park, Michael D. Higgins. Well, see, there's two parts of that that conversation. There's the institutional and official response to travellers and improvement and, and state-led improvements in their, li- in, in their living conditions. But there's also the responsibility of the traveller community mm. to take account of some of the behaviour of some members of their community, which is... I think the antipathy towards uh, towards travellers, which we're seeing, is a part of this uh, this surge for yeah, Peter Case. Not, not all of, all of it, all but of it's a part means, no. of that. Much of that is rooted not just in settled prejudices against travellers, but in a response to the behaviour of some travellers that uh, that that people sure. as, as part of what Lachlan says sorry, yeah you absolutely there's when when people's only experience of the traveller community is that they're you know they've been burgled or that they've sure. or that or that they see the poverty and squalor that they live in and think that's that's how travellers choose to live travellers don't choose to live in squalor and poverty you know I've heard people say as well there's, there's these issues that people see like you know attitude to women maybe in the travelling community attitudes to education that is feeds into a negative perception that some people have and that has to form part of well, whatever th- is going th- to happen. Again, it's a two-way thing. You know, there's issues there that the travelling community is have to deal with in terms of issues to education and women. Also, though, from a state level, there has to be greater support. Travellers need to be met where they're at. I mean, the supports for traveller kids going to school were cut in 2008, 100% cut, not a 20% cut, 30%, 100% 
cut that that just a lifeline for a lot of travelling um, kids in terms of staying in school was removed from them. Um, again, women's access to domestic violence services, you know, the, um, that's an issue for settled women as well, but it's particularly an issue for traveller women because the one, the, um, the kind of stigma about engaging with the state services, but also that there's a racism against them in terms of that their children might be taken into care if they put their head above the parapet and say, I'm not being treated very well here. So there's issues that hopefully the kind of ethnicity and the rec- that might give some recognition of the issues within the community that the state needs to respond to. It's a two-way thing. There's things in life you just can't control, like the weather, the traffic, or the fact that spilled coffee seems to love white shirts. But it's all good, because there's something you'll always be able to control, your company's finances. SAP Concur integrates all your business's expenses, travel and invoicing in one simple solution, giving you the visibility and control you need to drive your business forward. SAP Concur. It's how the best-run businesses make their expenses run better. Learn more at concur.co.uk slash control. We're talking about, the, we're still talking about the uh, the Peter Casey uh, vote. One of the things that strikes me is Kitty says that, you know, there are only 30,000 travellers in the country. So when the unhappiness, which he's talking about, among that broader group of the population, Pat, is, is expressed partly as as a kind of a, as a dislike or an antipathy to this particular very small outgroup. Isn't that more or less exactly what we have seen with kind of the rise of English nationalism, um, Trumpism in the United States, that people are unhappy and they fix on an outgroup of some sort as being to blame for it? Yeah, but its political potency often stems from uh, what, you know, what people see as the, you know, the purveyors of this sort of politics speaking out above, you know, political correctness or saying what everybody is thinking and saying the previously unsayable. That gives it a a, a sort of a potency, not just for voters, but also for, you know, the media coverage of these campaigns. And that kind of gives it a kind of a carry through to the public. Um, Sure, because there's a kind of a... makes it such a kind of a potent tool in campaigning. Because when when Casey made that intervention, which I referred to earlier on the the TV3 debate, or even looking at him during the debates with his kind of tie slightly askew and hair slightly sticking out, there was a a sort of an authenticity. I thought off the cuff, didn't know what he was going to say, which reminded me a bit of the farages of this world, you know? Yeah, it was almost this kind of jokey act. He was incoherent at times, I felt, in some debates. He, and even he'd start sentences and well. wouldn't yeah. finish them. His ideas would trail off. He'd interject with points that would be easily shot down. It was just this kind of... It, it almost looked like a bit slovenly, I thought, at times, that he just was in there freewheeling. But like, you but know, some people might read that as authenticity. Yeah, they might. Well, I'm sure it was spe- authentic, but it's authentic kind of stupidity in yeah, some or ways. Else. Or, you know, I mean, I was listening to some of the, I mean, he had a microphone stuck in his face all morning. And, you know, I mean, the sort of things he was talking about, he was going to, uh, he, he, he was, might run for president, or, but he might be Taoiseach already by that time. He's either going to found a new party or he might join one or he might run for office or he might not. And, cap- you know, it's a disgrace. He's a capitalist socialist. Well. socialist. It's a disgrace like, that people are on hospital trolleys and we have to get people on the housing ladder. It's all just... Mm. Brain farting out stuff. I think it was. You know, I think it's very dangerous to dismiss. I mean, but I, I I hear you, I dis- and I, I dismiss hear, it as a as a but, as a serious people, political program. People, potential, very fed up, pissed off with their lives. Voters yeah. hear that as the establishment being dismissive of me, not just him. Mm. 
and um, and I I just I just think that now I just think we have to be careful in the way we speak about people who have uh, who have real genuine grievances. They're not you know to write off Peter Casey's voters as as I heard not you someone as racist as um, as foolish as you know not very politically. That's really, really annoying for people to hear. And that's, I, I that's, that's the Hillary deplorables, yeah. Yeah. you know. That, that is dangerous. And that, that and was the initial reaction last time the exit polls were published. It was almost this kind of wailing on Twitter that 20% of the population are now racist. And like, it was, you were just like, this is just, or like, you know, and then there was like, the media need to account for themselves for giving this guy airtime. You're like, no, if you're talking down to people who actually seem to agree with things he's saying, mm. you're talking down to them and you're making the problem worse. And there's a cohort of people that don't recognise that when they say that they are making it worse and it's just a knee-jerk reaction instantly last night that was a reaction when the Casey vote uh, became apparent and it's just kind of so defeating what? Yeah, I mean, I was surprised. I was surprised at the size of the vote, but I, I, I knew, I yeah. knew we'd do well, and to, because he just, I knew he from what I was seeing on social media by people. There was a two days ago a nurse I saw on Twitter saying I'm a nurse, and all my colleagues are fed up with the fact that we're working all hours, God sends, and we, you know, and our lives are, you know, we can't afford to do anything. And he's speaking for us, and we're, he's he's getting our number one vote. Is it, these are these are genuine voters with genuine, you know, and were say these in not the exactly exactly the kind of people who Sinn Fein were looking to appeal to? Yeah, and well, is that not the other big story of this of this result? Is their failure, really dismal failure, to do that? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the two things I think Sinn Féin got wrong were one, they didn't have Sinn Féin logo on her posters. So, I mean, if you weren't, you know, reading the papers and you wouldn't have known who she was standing for. So, I mean, Sinn Féin needed to get out and say, this is our woman and we're behind her. Um, and they seem to have made a tactical decision to think that maybe she'd get more votes if she wasn't identified as a Sinn Féin candidate, which I think is a bit odd. And then um, they should have put her out much sooner. I mean, they knew if they knew they were going to stand someone in the election, they should have had her, you know, out on the hustings for the last six, seven months, you know, getting name recognition. She's a very presentable candidate. She seems to tick a lot of boxes. They're pushing women. She's a good looking woman. She's got the artistic kind of uh, thing that Michael D. Higgins has with her, you know, being the daughter of Shawnee Reader. So you would have thought that she would have uh, done quite well, but they seem to have just really messed it up. What do you think of that, Pat? How much of the, what went wrong for Sinn Féin was in the original strategy and how much was in the execution? Um, I, I think that the, the, the campaign was poor, um, including for some of the reasons that Kitty mentions, but also because her message didn't work. She spent most of the first part of the campaign talking about United Ireland. And for whatever reason, that message just did not fly with people. It didn't resonate with people. She seemed to talk more than in the second half, presumably cognizant of the fact that that wasn't uh, hitting home with people or wasn't producing the response that Sinn Féin hoped. She seemed to spend much of the second half then of the campaign almost campaigning against austerity as if this was 2011. Mm. You know, she was talking about standing up to the establishment, uh, you know, standing you know, up for, uh, that was for the election ordinary we were fighting, people, then two, more which than 2% of people things have just moved on. You yeah, know, if, that, if that was the election then. we were fighting, more than 2% of people in that RT exit poll would have said that the president's expenses were a serious issue for them, but it wasn't that type of election. That's true. That was seven years ago, and Pat says it's a complete wrong time to make that pitch. I think the strategy and the, the execution were, were badly conceived. A lot of people in the party didn't want Mary Lou MacDonald to go down this road. They kind of could see that Higgins was not only unbeatable, but was popular amongst their amongst voters. Their voters, younger yeah. people, 
you know, work class people as well, like Michael D. Higgins. They just could see that this was could be the way it's going to go. And there was always this chat amongst people in Sinn Féin, oh, we'll stand someone and we'll get 20 to 30% of the vote, which is probably what they thought when they looked at the Casey vote. That's what they'd get. But I always thought it was it was fanciful and they were met with this kind of... Were they in the end, were they, end, were they squeezed on both sides? Were they squeezed on the, yeah, the left-wing, yeah, younger urban vote side yeah, by Michael they, D. They, and on the right by the by the kind of Casey side? Yeah, I, yeah they were squeezed. I don't. That's why the, the argument for not standing against Michael D was always: look, he has younger, he has left, uh, he is slightly green himself. Although that w- wasn't an issue in it, so we're not going to get that vote. And then the anti-established, they were outflanked on the anti-establishment side, even though Leonie Rita was really kind of unconvincingly trying to talk about the cosy consensus and you know the parties fixing it up for themselves. Peter Casey went around that angle. I got them on that too. And it really is a, a, a misstep from from McDonald. She was in this studio earlier this week, and we asked her what. Do you remember? We asked her what the success in this election. What is success going to mean? She said our core vote. Well, this is far below their core vote. Like the RT exit poll had Leany Rita on seven and Sinn Fein in a party political vote on fifteen. Like that is a bad bad outing for Sinn Fein. It's a bit of a disaster for. Mary Lou McDonald, yeah, Mary Lou you know, I think in terms of the political, the party political fallout from this and how it affects political lands and landscape over the foreseeable future, I think it is a, uh, I think it's pretty there was bad already for a fe- Mary yeah, There was already a feeling among the two main parties that, that her star was beginning to wane somewhat, that if you look at the poll of polls um, in the last six months, that they were dropping back slightly, Fianna Fáil were edging up slightly, so that there was a feeling amongst Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael that they they had her on the run somewhat and that'll just kind of re-emphasise that. Well, it's a blow for the Sinn Féin establishment, but yeah. you know, the kind of the army council yeah, or whatever yeah, exactly. the political equivalent is because, you know, they've... I think the they've, political equivalent is the army council. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they've, they've obviously, um, you know, backed Mary Lou, who's been a controversial leader, particularly in the north, um, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of them will be rubbing their hands yeah. with Lee, but then they're worried in the north as well about what's happening with Brexit. If there's a hard border, they're going to be really badly hit in some of the dissident areas of the north. Yeah. So, uh, they think there's a lot of turmoil um, that Sinn Féin's looking The other thing that it does is it stops this, you know, down down south there was always this perception that Sinn Féin are a machine that will get their vote out. They will march yeah. from election to election to election to election. They go from success, 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 success and they're always building. This has brought that run to an end. I wonder this was the a, poppy thing a big blow for them? I mean, I you, know, you saw a lot of people like Michal McDonagh and Dahi Doolan and all on social media the next day after she said she'd wear the poppy saying, um, despite what, um, despite what Leah's saying that she'd wear the poppy, I'd never wear the poppy, but you know, but so I still... think that might but have I still, that core I'd fame, say a lot of people are yeah. really fed up with her about it. Also that. Really annoyed about the, it. The, the, the broader difficulty that Mary Lou MacDonald will have to face. If... If you think, as as I do, that the whole point of Mary, Lou's McDon- Mary Lou McDonald's leadership is to bring them into government mm. in Dublin, that necessitates a move towards a middle ground because they will do it in coalition first as a junior partner for one of the uh, for one of the bigger parties. And if you're auditioning for the role of junior partner in a coalition led by Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael, which she explicitly is, mm. then it's very difficult to be the anti-establishment party and the, you know, the uh, stick it to the man sort of party as well to be that. That's the real problem, isn't That's, it? Yeah. And well, that it is. is, that yeah. is a strategic problem. It's not a short-term tactical difficulty. It's a strategic mm. difficulty for Mary Lou McDonald. I'm not sure she has the answer it's to it. tension in the whole Sinn Féin project, which is, you know, Sinn Féin sees itself as the Irish nation, mm. as, you know, the party for all the people. 
eventually, you know, you have to decide where you come down. You're a party for the kind of the working class. You're a party for the business, you know, and if you can't be both and that's a tension. And then there is the whole nationalist thing in the mix. They may they may have really been caught unawares by this election because they probably calculated, as Pat says, we're going into government, we're going to move towards the centre. The harder left, if I can put it that way, um, they're not as potent as they were. Water charges is gone as an issue. The anti-austerity uh, thing has died away. So we're safe enough now to make this move. And now this Casey uh, anti-establishment figure has come out and really kind of upended that well, assumption. Well, but to say the anti-austerity, I mean, I think the anti-austerity thing has changed. It's not mm. so blatantly anti-austerity. Maybe this is where Sinn Féin is perhaps missing a trick or so, because that level of uh, people feeling that they're not part of the recovery well, is still huge. It's still huge, but it's not as... It's not as Potent. I think it's, it's not changed. As, it's not as visceral as it it's was. It's not as visceral, but with, there are new issues like precarious work, the yeah, cost of housing, absolutely. the cost of childcare, and they're affecting a broader base of people. So no way that we ca- certainly can't say that the recovery is, you know, is here and everyone's benefiting from yeah. it. And that's the, that's a vote that the left, I think, are going after. And Sinn Féin. Let's just probably. wrap up the other candidates. The the the, the also rounds. I feel. Um, it's sorry for Joan Freeman. She didn't look like she was enjoying herself, and the, the, her campaign never really took off in any real way. But I, I, I feel that she wasn't humiliated in the same way as the other two remaining candidates were. That Sean Gallagher, compared to his last time out, he, he must be wondering you know, why why he went for a second term. So, and Gavin Duffy is the worst ever result of any presidential candidate in the history of the state. Like, <laughs> It is, yeah. I didn't realise that until <laughs> now. Like, Mary, Mary Davis was the second worst. Yeah, but, uh, yeah like John, John Freeman has come out of it with her, her head high, I think because it was striking during a number of the debates. She often said, like I remember one time, she said, can we stop feeding the beast, I think is what she said, mm. about Peter Casey. Yeah. And then she go, can we stop talking about expenses? She wanted to bring she it back to a very... different yeah, she sort went, of campaign you might, say, you might kind yeah. of cynically say, as we probably would, that's very wholesome and a very kind of you know naive view of politics. But it was kind of endearing at the same time. She didn't let herself get sidetracked into like, you know, Gallagher at the end clearly just abandoned all pretense of being, you know, Mr. Sunnyside up uh, here to give you jobs and just kind of completely went for Michael D. Higgins in the most cynical way. Like not cynical, but it just it just kind of made you go, oh, come on, this was this what it was about the whole time? Like, you know, he abandoned everything he had and went for it. And she kept her head and kept her, her, her pitch. Sure. And she used to be admired for that, I think. Oh, yeah, I, I agree with that. I yeah. think, you know, um, I'm, I'm, and I made the point that uh, people used to often say, you know, what is it about these guys, you know, the dragons? And they wake up in the morning and they think, and this is true of some of the candidates that didn't get into the race ultimately as well. And they wake up in the morning and they think, you know, you'd be great. They look in the mirror and they're like, you'd be, you, could, you could be president of Ireland someday. And I, I was trying to explain to people, no, that's actually not what happened. What they did is they got up in the morning and they thought, geez, Sean Gallagher nearly became president the last time. I could become president. And uh, I, I so think... So it's all his fault is what you're saying. I, well, I think that the precedent of the last election campaign was what left us with so many candidates in this one. And I think it'll be interesting to see in seven years' time do you have the same dynamic? My expectation is not. I'm predict- because I'm so many of the candidates had such a tired time I'm at this time that when, and did so badly. When Bono is eliminated, that'll put Panty Bliss ahead of Roy King. And that'll be <laughs> Panty Bliss result. actually has indicated that she wants to stand. Not this time is what the answer was a couple of months ago. With the very clear implication that the next time, yes... So, you know, I think the experience think of some of the candidates this that. time will and give Plus it's going to be a more traditional election the next time. There's no incumbent, so you'll have a Fianna Gaylor in, you'll have a Fianna Fáiler in, you'll have a Sinn Féinor in. And therefore, they will lock down their councillors all over the country. So be, we won't see what we saw 
this time, which is kind and of... we might have Peter Casey, leader of a Rexit. We could. Kitty, we all have forgotten about this by Monday. And is it just is it one of those is it one of those sort of electoral contests? You know. Well, I tend to think so. Yeah, I mean, I think the I think the Peter Casey legacy will, um, you know, will give people food for thought in terms of you know how, what 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 are we missing there? And I hope they do it in a good way as opposed to how can we capitalise on that? To say how do we address that? Um, but I do think that um, Michael D will make his speech when he's inaugurated on eleventh of November, and it'll be back to business. Pat, last word. If people have forgotten about it uh, by Monday, they uh, they can rest assured that there will be several pages of coverage in the uh, Irish Times to refresh their memories of the weekend. Uh, absolutely unmissable it will all be as well. Pat, Kitty, Fake, thanks very much. And that's it for this special edition of the Inside Politics podcast. Thanks very much to our producer Declan Conlon for running the chip here today. Um, thanks to you for listening. We'll be back again next week. Remember, you can find all our podcasts on irishtimes.com slash podcast or you can get us on iTunes. Do review us. It helps to bring us out to a wider audience, which we always like to get. Uh, you can mail me at hlinhan at irishtimes.com or you can always find me on Twitter. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks for listening.